Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of The Brown Bag. I'm your host, Michael T. Brown. Hey, you can follow us on Twitter at MTBrown98 or connect with us on LinkedIn or our Facebook page. That's Facebook.com slash TheBrownBag1, where you can post questions for our guests. You can also catch our broadcast on demand after taping or get a free download on iTunes. Have you missed any of our previous broadcasts? Don't worry. Just go to blogtalkradio.com. Search the brown bag and listen at your leisure. Well, friends, we've got another great broadcast in store for you today. Have you ever been knocked down and felt like you would not get back up? Have you lost something valuable and felt that you would not recover? Maybe you thought your opportunity for success has come and gone. Well, today we have a fine example of resilience, a person who is beating the odds and is empowering others along the way. Mike, as you can see, I'm pretty excited about today's guest and what he has to share. Uh, but before we do that, I wanted to pick your brain. Uh, Dr. Maya Angelou, another giant, uh, has gone home. What are some of your thoughts when it comes to her? Wow, Mike, uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, man. You know, she is someone, I, I can't really think of very many people that you could just say is a wellspring of wisdom. And and wow. that's what she represented to me. And, um, you know, on the notification of her passing, um, I, I posted one of her favorite um, quotes. Um, it, it was just so powerful. I'd just like to tell you um, that sure. quote by Maya Angelou. It was, life is not measured by the number of breaths we take, but by the moments that take our breath away. And it's just wow. a powerful statement. And she could say so much with so few words. It was just amazing. Yeah, you think about Nelson Mandela and now her. You know, we've certainly uh, seen some giants who've gone home. But what an mm-hmm. impact she made on the lives of so many of us. And to Mike, Mike, we've got another difference maker on our broadcast today. He's literally uh, leaving his impact as well. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our special guest for us? David L. Heber is the executive director and founder of Concentric Educational Solutions Incorporated, a Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit organization that supports schools with implementation of student services. Since 2010, David has led Concentric to being recognized as an innovator with placing students at the center of the educational experience. Using concentricity as a theory of change, David has collaborated and consulted with over 100 schools in 20 states. David's passion is working with young people in general, but specifically with African-American and Latino males. David uses his personal story of grief, poverty, incarceration, and redemption as a means to connect with students and challenge them to recognize their potential, honor their promise, and fulfill their purpose. He's currently working on his memoir, From Prisoner to Principal, Only God Can Judge Me, and has been sharing his story in schools and universities throughout the United States. 
Dr. David Heber, welcome to the Brown Bag, sir. Good morning, good morning. How are you doing? I'm great, man. We're so excited to have you on today, Dave. I appreciate you uh, making time for us. No, no problem. It's, it's, it's my pleasure. Well, Dave, I definitely want to pick your brain about ways we can, you know, uh, better educate our students and educate our, our families. But first, let our listeners know a little bit about yourself. I know you've got a powerful testimony that um, you definitely don't mind sharing. So why don't you go ahead and help our listeners get to know you a little better? Mike, we, we just lost him for a second, so we'll Did wait we for him, him to call back in. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure what happened, but he should be back with us shortly. Sounds good. Okay, I think we've got him back. Hey, now. sorry about that, guys. I'm back. Oh, that's okay. I'm glad you're able to hey. call back in. Yeah, yeah Dave, that's I was the, just, uh, beauty I, and the curse of cell phones. Yeah, I tell you. I, well, we're just glad <laughs> we were able to, you were able to pal- plug back in. Dave, I started with my first question. I, I want to pick your brain about, you know, ways we can better educate our youth, and I know you've got an um, extensive background in doing that. But first, I wanted you to share your powerful testimony. Uh, I know it's a part of what it is that you do. Help our listeners get to know you better and understand the story behind the man. No, no, I, I, uh, like I said, I appreciate the opportunity. You know, but most people uh, will think that I came from a tragic situation or, you know, a tragic background, and, in fact, it's just the opposite. Um, I'm, I'm biracial. I was raised by my, um, my maternal grandparents. Um, my mother left, um, left me, one, quite frankly, when I was in the hospital. I never knew my biological father until much later, 1998. But my uh, maternal grandparents really understood uh, their limitations and the challenges that it was going to be raising an, uh, a young black male. Uh, and they didn't shy away from the challenges, and they really embraced, um, you know, their stereotypes, and they were, they're very, they were very honest from the, from the very beginning, ever since I could remember. Um, but I lived a very, you know, average middle-class uh, upbringing in, in predominantly white neighborhoods. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I had the normal childhood. Uh, you know, quote unquote, normal childhood. I played sports my whole life. I uh, was really involved in baseball. Uh, when I got to high school and started going through some of the identity questions that that most young people do, um, you, my grandparents were very honest. Um, they saw that I was just attracted that I was attracted to African American women, um, despite the fact that I had I'd grown up around predominantly uh, whites. And but mm-hmm. they didn't shy away from it, and they embraced it and just and and really helped me uh, develop. And then during my senior year, I ran track during high school, and uh, fortunately, I was very, very good in track. I was all state in cross country and um, the mile and four by eight and the open eight hundred. And I had a lot of college scholarship offers uh, to go and run track, uh, D one, and uh, I took it for granted. And during my senior year, um, while out Christmas shopping, my father, that I call him, but really my grandfather, he died. He had a heart attack while Christmas shopping. Wow. And that started a really powerful downward spiral. And within the next six months, my grandmother, uh, who I called my mother, was diagnosed with a brain tumor and lung cancer. And, you know, one of the things that kind of develops um, why we're doing what we do now at, with Concentric is because of those personal um, issues that I had and personal challenges around how is it that Students can go through a lot of tragic things on a day-to-day basis or very traumatic uh, events and not get the support. But here I was, quote-unquote, a star athlete, and I don't remember speaking to one person, counselor, teacher, even my coach at the time, about the challenges of losing my grandfather, and then my mother goes uh, and gets incarcerated. I mean, my mother goes and dies. And then during that time as she's going through the chemotherapy for the brain tumor and the, the lung cancer, that is when I start doing a lot of negative behaviors, and I end up getting arrested and sentenced to eight years in prison. Um, when I went to Gander Hill Prison, my mother was still going through the chemotherapy. Um, one day, uh, she was supposed to come up and visit. She could not visit because she had gone into a coma, uh, and she died a couple uh, a couple days later. Um, wow. Because of my charge, I was not allowed to go to the funeral. And then at that point, so for someone who had something going into their senior year, everything, scholarship offers, everything, um, and then at, at the end of the year, not having that, being facing eight, year, uh, eight years in prison, uh, that's why I decided that I had to do something. And it wasn't necessarily by happenstance or by, you know, something that I necessarily did, but when I made that decision to want to get better and, and change my life, it was amazing the powerful people in prison 
uh, older older men who saved my life and, and guided guided me and gave me that mentoring uh, that I didn't even know they were giving to me at the time. And so every time uh, I wanted to get into something necessarily negative or or that could, that could keep, uh, keep me off focus, they would pull me back. And they had me reading things I had never read before, talking to me about the challenges I was going to face because of the situation I put myself in. And I went ahead and got my GED in high school diploma in prison and went through a very powerful program called AVP, Alternative Violence uh, Program, started by the Quakers in the early 70s, but kind of branched out through the United States. The two state coordinators at the time took an interest in my, my story and, I guess, maybe my abilities, and they continued to start training, training me uh, about mediation and about really just realizing potential. And they wrote to, without me knowing, they wrote to the judge on my behalf, and the judge took uh, six years off my sentence. Um, wow. They got me to apply to Lincoln University. Um, I got accepted to Lincoln. Uh, I got out of prison August 9th of 1996. Mm-hmm. I went to Lincoln University nine days later with $42 in my pocket. And from, from Lincoln, I went ahead and went to Temple. I went to Morgan. I uh, be, uh, became a teacher, assistant principal, then principal. And then I was blessed with this opportunity uh, five years ago to start my own business. And that's been wow. kind of, that's been kind of the, uh, the journey along the way. Now, I've got to ask you, during senior year, you literally went from a home into an incarcerated situation. And I know you yes. didn't have that sense of family after both of your, for all intents and purposes, parents, you know, passed away. How did you, you talked about having mentors and older guys in prison, and I don't know if that's, you know, I think some of that's probably changing through the years. It might not have that type of environment in prison. Uh, how did you recalibrate and, and kind of get your mind wrapped around I guess a sense of you know not having family. How did you get through that? Well, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I talk about it now in retrospect, not understanding what it was, what I was actually going through then. But in retrospect, when I when when I was doing really well in uh, in track and field, and then really well in baseball, my white family that raised me was extremely supportive. I mean, they were coming to all my games and everything like that. But there was also a jealousy. I mean, and one of the things I could talk freely about now is that in my white family, the, the family that raised me, there was embedded racism. Um, oh. And I don't even know if they knew that it was embedded racism. I, I could just recall some of the jokes that they would make, uh, some of the comments and stuff like that. And I think it almost got to, to the extent that they saw me as part of the family. They didn't realize that I was African-American. And oh. so when I did become incarcerated, uh, even though I was, 10 to 12 miles away from the homes that I grew up with, uh, grew up in, no one, no one came to visit me at all, none of my white family. And wow. so I, I learned really uh, early on during my period of incarceration that I was going to have to do it by myself. But, uh, again, I, I think it was that, that commitment and the support from so many different people uh, inside. And even down to, I remember, uh, a correctional officer, uh, it, we, everyone called him Grandpa. He was just, you know, an older black man. And it was me and my celly, Kylin, at the time, and Kylin was my age. We were both 18. Um, Kylin was from Philadelphia, had no family as well, and he would re- he really looked out for us. No one, uh, obviously, didn't we have we didn't have people coming up and visiting us. We didn't have money, people putting money on our books to uh, to go to the commissary, but he would he would feed us every night. He would bring wow. extra food and feed us every night. I mean, so even people all the way down to the guards, uh, people. Um, who encouraged me to pursue my GED, uh, and then not just start with the GED, but you know, finish and get the high school diploma. It, it just seemed like more, the more steps that I took in the positive direction, the more opportunities uh, opened up. Opportunities I, I and quite frankly, I didn't even uh, anticipate uh, nor think were available. And so I think it, it is that you know there is a nurturing part in there. I mean, we, there's a lot of uh, different. There's a lot of people who had very different experiences than myself being incarcerated. And right. that's why, you know, they're affected the way that they were affected. But, you know, I'm not going to say being incarcerated was a positive experience. Uh, I wish there was a different way there, right. a different way I could have gone. But looking back at it, it was a very necessary part of my development. It wow. gave, it's given me a foundation that I never would have gotten before. Uh, I yeah. remember, you know, eating off the floor. Uh, eating, wow. you know, something as as small as the heel of the bread that I would never do growing up. 
Mm. And, and so it just gave me a different perspective that, you know, everyone and every, everyone has a story. Um, yeah. Some much more compelling than others or different than others. But we're shaped by our shared experiences and what we, what we can do with them. And never take our position for granted that today we can have something and tomorrow literally can be taken away. And that's yeah. what I'm reminded of with my grandfather passing away. I mean, I woke up in the morning, everything was fine. I go to sleep, my grandfather's dead, we lose everything. Wow. What was your, what was your light bulb moment in, that helped you turn it around? Because I think that can help a lot of people. So probably when, when, I, when I was in prison and I got the phone call that, um, well, actually the phone call I think went to a counselor and then they told it to a guard, whatever the case may be, the way that the information was related to me, that my grandmother had passed away um, and that I could not go to her funeral. And then it was kindly, you know, in, in many ways, uh, I think I was spared, that my higher power spared me from actually seeing what the chemotherapy would, was doing to my grandmother. Um, I mean, I would see as she would come to the visits, but, you know, overall, just her, you know, her health failing to the point that she went into a coma. And then when I could not attend the funeral, then I knew I had to do something different. I mean, and so that was kind of, uh, you know, another crucible in my life where I knew I had to make a change. Um, and I didn't quite frankly know what changed, but I just knew I was really by myself. Um, and then that's when, you know, I, I would start, you know, reaching out to people just in some conversations and, the more I reached out and, like, I would get into one program. I remember going to uh, um, Bible college on a Friday night because everyone was on lockdown, and if you went to Bible college, you could get out. So, I mean, yeah. it wasn't, you know. You didn't have any, the greatest uh, motives, though, right? Yeah, no, exactly. I just didn't want to be locked down. Um, but then I started meeting other people, and then that's when I got the same people who were in Bible college are the ones that got me uh, um, interested in Toastmasters about public speaking. Ah. And I even, you know, I didn't know what Toastmasters was at 17, I mean, at 17, 18. Uh, but they got me involved with it. The same people who were doing Toastmasters were running different programs. They were uh, in the GED program or tutoring. And, or, and so it just snowballed. Yeah. And, I mean, it was, there, there was, was a sense of, you know, purpose in that. Right. And I'm sure there were people that, that identified early, just saw something, and he was like, what is this guy doing here? I mean, you know, and I guess they saw that, and they were willing to invest in you. And that's a powerful thing that, I, you know, I would hope that more of our young men and women who are incarcerated, you know, that there would be programs and people there to help them. Uh, obviously, for you, education was a, was a lifeline that helped get you from, one situ- from, a, from a not good situation to a better situation. What would you say about how we can – improve educational outcomes for our students? I mean, I think one of the things that we're trying to, uh, and, and we're doing this in more and more conversations across the board, is that we've we got to get away from the one-size-fits-all. And we're, I think we're kind of there theoretically with academics. So we always say, you know, there is no one-size-fits-all. We have to differentiate instruction. Uh, some people are audio. Some people are visual. Some people are hands-on learners. Well, that's just, we have to individualize the type of supports that we give as well. And that we, we can't say, okay, um, if we give you an academic problem and you don't learn it, we're going to go back and reteach it because it's important. But then if a student, conversely, if a student doesn't get it right with behavior, then it's, you know, three strikes that we're out. And it's, it's, it's amazing that it's taken us so long just to get to the point to realize that we've got to get beyond zero tolerance where you just kick, you know, where students are just kicked out of school. Um, but many, the more school systems I come in contact with, when I look at their student code of conduct, it mirrors the criminal justice system. Wow. You know, from misdemeanors to felonies. Mm. And I mean, so they won't call it a misdemeanor or a felony, but they'll call it a tier one offense. But if you, right. if you, if you, get, if you accumulate enough tier one offenses, it becomes like you've conducted a tier three, which is a felony. Same thing with misdemeanors. Right. So it's amazing. We have to really differentiate the support and understand that, you know, it might it can't be three strikes you're out. It, it, different people, everyone develops differently and needs to to really have that individualized support across the board, socially, That's socially, good. emotionally, as well as, as well as you can uh, ac- uh, academically. Yeah, and I mean, when we talk about education, you you just touched on it. The need for mental health. You know, let's face it, many of our students are facing tremendous struggles and stresses at home. That does impact their academic performance. Can you talk about the need to address this 
And what experience have you seen in addressing these needs? So, you know, so, there's, so there's a couple of things. Um, there's, a, there's an overall, and this is a generalization or a stereotype, there's a, but there's a stigma, particularly within African-American families and communities, around the need for mental health services. You know, I mean, we'll just say that, you know, that boy needs some act right. Right. We, we don't say. I mean, we we don't we won't say. Uh, you know, he's you know, and it's overdiagnosed. But ODD. I'm talking about those students that generally need the additional support. I'm not talking about the fact that uh, students uh, will disproportionately African American Latino students, male students, are labeled for special education. It's just that the edu- our educational system is not constructed to deal with the whole child, and mm-hmm. with the, with the accessibility of mental health services to everybody or the need for it. But what we really need to do is put it on the on the front uh, burner as opposed to putting it on the back burner. And we don't do that. We'll spend millions of dollars on developing common core standards. And I'm not against the academic piece. It's, it's, right. You have to know how to read. But you have to be prepared to uh, want to read and, right. and, and, take the, and take those skill sets. Many of our young people today are facing um, not just one traumatic event in their life, but they are constantly facing complex trauma. They see it every yeah. single day of their lives. And we don't, we don't address that and spend enough time on it. And we're expecting young people in a world where they're instantaneously connected to everything and they have accessibility to almost everyone, that we're expecting them to be able to be cognitively and socially and emotionally developed enough to deal with adult problems. And as adults, we're, we're, we're not there yet. Like we'll, we, as adults, we'll take a mental health day and we'll call off of work. Right. We say that to a, we'll say that to a student. I mean, if a student says, I'm just having a bad day, no, you got to get it together. Yeah. What have you saw? What have you seen as that key ingredient when working with these young people who, you know, may be struggling with all types of issues, you know, outside of the classroom? What's been some golden nuggets, some things that you found that really connects you with them and help get them motivated? Because I can hear somebody listening saying, you know, uh, I got a young man or a young lady who I see such great potential in, but I just can't hit that that hot button item that's going to get them motivated. What would you see say that um, has helped you become successful in, in helping a lot of these youth? So I, I think and they, they sound cliche, but they've just been pretty much, I, I guess, for lack of a better word, time-tested. I mean, as far as, as far as my first-hand experience, is that you have got to be unconditional. Yeah. Students really respond when you're unconditional. It's not where you're, you know, it, it goes back to the, the old uh, New Edition song, Can You Stand the Rain? So yeah. it's really easy to have the support when things are going well. Are you going to be supported when things are not going well? Um, and so you know, young people really respond to uh, you have unconditional support, authenticity, which I think is, uh, is underrated. I mean, we really have to truly be authentic. And probably the most important thing is uh, transparency and vulnerability. Yeah. Is that no. I'm just openly, to me, and I, I use this example, it's not apropos as it was, what, four years ago, but you know, in that movie, Eight Mile, and I give this example all the time, the reason that Eminem, B-Rabbit at the time, was able to win that last battle against Papa Doc is because he told the audience and Papa Doc everything that there was going to be said about him. And right. so I, I know for me, I just put everything on front street, so to speak, because what are you going to do with it? I, I just right. turned the vulnerability into a strength. Mm. I know what I've done. I know how I've messed up. I know that I'm a continuous work in progress, um, that I'm one bad decision away from ruining my life and impacting my children's lives. And I I realize that every single day that, you know, I give myself the pep talk that we have to make right choices. And, you know, a caveat to the mental health services piece is that, you know, I always knew something was, I was wired a little bit differently growing up. Uh, just because about being competitive and, and things like that. But it wasn't until 2000, last year, 2013, that I was clinically um, diagnosed as being bipolar. Wow. And I'm, I'm 38 years old. And so when, when the uh, psychiatrist starts talking me through some of these things and we're talking through my behaviors, historical behaviors, whatever the case may be, and he, he started understanding it and helped me to understand it, it just, it, it was almost that aha moment saying, well, wow, this, this really clarifies and explains a whole lot of behaviors for the past 38 years. Wow. That is, that is, that is 
powerful to to share. And I mean, I think hopefully you know our listeners are getting that in the need to be transparent and willing to share your testimony because it can really you know uh, I believe help a lot of people. Now I read a, a blog that you that you shared on Twitter and it talked about a mentor that you identified. I believe he was a college president. Can you talk a little bit about the need for mentorship and how you've managed to turn the page and stay on the straight and narrow? Because let's face it, uh, you, you talked about growing up for the most part. It sounded like you stayed out of trouble for the most part until about senior year. So you, you kind of knew how to hold it together. Then you went wayward, it sounds like. But now you've gotten back on the straight and narrow. How has mentorship uh, helped you, and how, has, how have you managed to – to leave that a lot of those old negative behaviors behind. Yeah, so it's a constant challenge. I mean, it's definitely a constant challenge. Uh, and I don't want to paint the picture that you know I did one bad thing with uh, that got me incarcerated, which what I was convicted of was burglary, second degree. Uh, mm-hmm. I've messed up plenty of times uh, over and over um, yeah. because everyone goes through different stages of development. Time that I became incarcerated. It was more, what I learned, what I really learned was resiliency, um, tenacity. I mean, some of these are buzzwords, but survival. And so what incarceration the first time did for me, it it really prepared me to live on my own at almost any cost, by any means necessary. I mean, that's how I got through school with, with no money. I mean, Because you were at an age where you would have, about the age you would have went off to college. So you were at the age where you were getting to where you would need to stand on your own anyway. No, absolutely. So, you, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the stories I always tell is that, you know, during freshman week, and it's probably like this all over the place, but, uh, uh, you know, my experience, the majority of my experience has ever been with HBCUs. So, I mean, right. going off to college is like a huge family and community event. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. family takes the child, you know, takes the young person to college. Mm-hmm. And I remember, uh, I remember um, going up there for freshman day uh, and, you know, move-in day on August, uh, or August 18th, and all these families up here, and I actually took a, I actually got a ride. I didn't have any possessions. I took a ride with someone who was two years younger than me from my old high school, who I had, who I ran track with in high school. Uh, he's, you know, quite frankly, he's now my frat brother. Uh, but I took, uh, I called a ride with his, uh, his grandfather. And I remember, you know, this joyous event where, you know, all these families are around. But I was all by myself. Once I moved myself in, there were no family members to go to the uh, registration line or, you know, get the uh, room key. I was really by myself, but wow. I was able to do that because jail had prepared me to be by myself. Mm. So it, it, it was really weird, um, just in the yeah. sense of each step, each prior step prepared me for the step I was going to take. The mentorship with Dr. Hrabowski, uh, who was probably, well, undoubtedly, the most influential person in my life, he showed me how to, um, along with my children, just showed me how to really be human again. Mm. Because I had lost the, I had lost the ability to be human, even through college, and even as the first uh, couple years as an educator, I was so selfish. It was all about me because that was my survival skill. Yeah, that it had yeah. to be all about me. He has, he has coached me in in my late twenties and early, yeah, early and now mid thirties to be human again. That it's not about mm. me. And it's, it's him always being unconditional. No matter how many times I, I disappoint him or make a wrong decision or don't listen to him, and he's never been wrong in 10 years, he's always there. He's just constantly wow. always there. And he treats me like I'm the only mentee, but he has thousands of mentees. Wow. And he has, uh, you know, he has an unbelievable uh, capacity to be human, and that's what he translates. And what he's teaching me now, as more and more, as some people ask me to be their mentor, and you know, I'm still at that age. I haven't quite accepted. Accepted. I'm still at that stage where I haven't accepted my age yet. Like, you know, when I get called sir, you're like, you know, who's sir? You looking around? But <laughs> uh, she's like, well, okay, it's me. Um, but that being a mentor, a lot of people want to be called a mentor, and they really have no clue. Being a mentor is extremely active, and it's a huge responsibility. And I think as we talk about mentoring, it's it's an active uh, relationship, being Uh a mentor. And it's it's a huge responsibility. So a lot of times when schools saying we have mentoring programs and stuff like that, uh, you know, I think we have to redefine that because it's it's even deeper than that. It's much deeper than that. It's it's, being a mentor is is a skill set. It's, you know, really being in tune with who you are. 
um, yeah. reflection. And so I think you know, the, the process of mentoring needs a, you know, a lot of work around it to make sure that we really have well-rounded mentors. Right, right. Man, that is good. That is good. Now let me ask you a pun, and I want to get to a lot of your work that you're doing with Co-Century. Uh, but before we get to that, after you got out of college, out of incarceration, tell us about the process of reunifying with family. Did that happen? I know you mentioned you said you, you got back in touch with your – you finally located your biological father. Talk about now that you, once you got out of college, got out of incarceration, how did you reconnect with family or did you? I was, so when I was incarcerated, like I said, my, uh, my white family never came to visit me. But I would get letters from people who I had gone to school with, high school, and whatever case might be. One of my close friends in high school, his name was Stefan Torrance. And I would tell him, you know, he would ask me how things are going, whatever the case may be, and I'm saying, you know, I just got my GED or, you know, things are happening. Uh, but at the time, my biological mother was still alive. Uh, she okay. passed in 2010. But my, my biological mo- mother uh, kind of wrote me, uh, not kind of, she did write me when I was in prison. And after years, 18, 19 years of not knowing who my father was, my biological father, she all of a sudden, you know, gave me his name when I was incarcerated. Oh. I'm like, wow, like, you know, I, I thought we asked you about this for many, many years, and you never knew. Yeah. Right? So she gave me his name, and his name was John Torrance. Well, Delaware is really small. Uh, Delaware is extremely small. And so I remember writing my, when she told me who my father, his name, John Torrance, and obviously my, my close friend was Stefan Torrance, I wrote him and said, you know, it's odd that, you know, my biological father's name is John Torrance. Well, he took that information and went back to his his grandmother, Miss Bernice. And when he told Miss Bernice about John Torrance, she said, wow, yeah, Teddy. Well, she, I mean, that's his nickname. She was married to Teddy, my, my biological father. She was married to his, um, his cousin. And so mm-hmm. come to find out, I mean, I was, Stefan is like my third cousin. And so when I got out of prison on August 9th, I remember catching the court, uh, the, uh, the court bus from Lower Delaware to Wilmington. Um, and Miss Bernice asked me, and she, she was unbelievable. Miss Bernice was really the quintessential, like, soul food big mama. Like, yeah. her house was open 24-7 to everybody. And once mm-hmm. you came to the house, you were literally family, mm. uh, even if you had no blood. And before I went to prison, she said, uh, do, she asked me if I wanted to uh, connect with my biological father. She knew where he lived and everything like that. He lived right. I said, no, I want to get myself uh, settled. And so my junior year at, uh, at Lincoln, I won Mr. Lincoln. Mm-hmm. And I invited uh, Miss Bernice and the family to come up there. And this was my, kind of now my default uh, black family. Um, and she said, the only way I'm coming is if you meet your father now. She said, I'm not thinking of meeting him. You're going to meet him. And um, so, I mean, you didn't argue with Miss Bernice. And so Let me I showed up. Real quick, Dave. Let me pause you real quick. Are you kind of fanning your phone? We're getting a lot of background noise there. Oh, no, no. Um, let's turn that shit. Uh, I, I t- turn my air conditioning off. Okay, um, good, good. So Miss Bernice uh, set up a visit for me on a Sunday with my father, and I met my biological, biological father in October of 2000, October of 1998, I'm sorry. And, you know, come to find out, there was a lot of similarities. Um, he was a history teacher, had been his whole wow. life. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, <laughs> he grew up, uh, my biological uh, uh, paternal grandparents were, lived in the neighborhood where my high school girlfriend, sweetheart, lived in. Um, and so, I mean, it became less about a father-son relationship and more of a friendship. And, wow. I mean, a, a friendship that continues to, uh, continues to this day. And then, you know, I, I had... Did he know had, about you? I mean, was it a... I mean, what, what was his story when you connected with him? I mean, did you... No, he never knew. And, and, that, wow. and that's the funny part. My, be, my uh, mother never told him that she, yes, I think in context now I understand it because, you know, in 1970s and 76, you know, uh, biracial marriages were still not accepted. Yeah. Or they were frowned upon or, or, you know, or relationships because it's not the marriage. But he said he he dreams that he had a child out there. And so he he used to have dreams that he had a child. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it it was absolutely interesting. Um, that that we were able to meet like that. So it, it was it was a powerful experience. 
And it's and it's been a positive one so far. I mean, is is does it feel like family connecting with him? It does, but I have I have a hard time, uh, and this is just you know one of my blind spots. I have a hard time connecting with family. Um, what has helped me a lot is the closeness. So I have three children. Um, Jasim is my oldest uh, in Delaware, and I had him with uh, my college girlfriend. Um, mm-hmm. But the two children that I have with my wife. The first one is Cheyenne, my baby girl, and then uh, little, little Freeman, named after Freeman, DJ. Um, but quite frankly, it was my daughter. Uh, she's actually in the backseat listening to me. She, she doesn't like me telling this story. She <laughs> she showed me uh, that I could love again. Wow. I, I don't know what it is with daddies and little girls, but, you know what I mean, she she is, yeah, she's my everything. Wow, that is awesome. That is awesome. Now, Dave, I do want to hear about some of the work that you're doing around the country, some of the work that you've done uh, with school divisions. Uh, tell us about it. Absolutely. Hello? Yeah, we're here. Okay, yeah. So I'm sorry, you you uh, you faded. Uh, could you just repeat oh, okay. the question? Yeah, no, I was asking you about your work with uh, with your nonprofit and some of the things that you're you're seeing happen with that. Yeah, so things have things have really uh, picked up now. I mean, uh, a small business is you know I, I guess it's a small business. I'm I'm definitely not a you know business person tra- by training, uh, but. So we started in 2010. So when I, I moved on from being an administrator in Baltimore, I came to D.C. I was director of services for a, a public school. And I'm here for, uh, for a charter school, Cesar Chavez. And we were getting some really good results with attendance and behavior. And an organization out of California, New Schools Venture Fund, uh, and the partner uh, responsible for the D.C. area, Dr. Kimberly she really took an interest in the work that we were doing with, with discipline, attendance, uh, minority males, um, and then special education and mental health services. And she asked me how I thought about taking my theory of change. And at that time, there was no theory of change. I mean, I, I didn't – concentricity didn't exist. It was, we were just doing what we thought uh, young people needed. And she asked me to, you know, really sit down and think about what we're doing, what's working, and submit it. Uh, we submitted a proposal. And we got funded, and we are one of the very first, within the first two or three, uh, of African American-owned companies, nonprofits, uh, who were, who have been given a grant by New School Venture Fund. Um, wow. They fund organizations like Teach for America and New Leaders for New Schools, but not many African American-owned. I, I don't think that's by uh, any type of malice or you know being intentional not funding. It's just many African American companies don't have the seed money to actually even get started. Uh, I see. Uh, and so, you know, even to go through, I mean, you, you know, I was given a unique opportunity that I was already doing what it is that Concentric was going to become. So it wasn't that much of a heavy lift, but most, most of the times if you, if you look at it, you know, you have to dedicate, you have to work full time on just your business. And yeah. you know, not many of us have the opportunity to just say, okay, I'm going to quit my job and, you know, just work on this full time. So we started doing work around those four components, organizational development, mental health services, uh, student culture or school culture, and special populations, ELL and special needs students. And we started slowly working with different school, uh, local school systems in D.C., I mean local schools, CMOs, like charter schools, and DCPS, and then we just branched out. Once we started getting some of the results, um, the results kind of spoke for themselves, and people start talking. Wow. And that's kind of um, – how we went to Detroit, New York, uh, Prince George's County, Baltimore City now, New Orleans, and so we're starting to get that momentum. That is awesome. Tell us about that theory of change. Uh, break that down for us. You come into a so, school division. What what's the mindset? What are the, some of the strategies to to help turn schools around? I know there might be some listeners out there who can who can find some value in it. So we talk about innovation. When I speak about innovation, I think it's a, a lot of people want to call us a program. Well, we're not a program. Right? We're a mindset. It's, it's an approach. Um, students do not respond to programs. Students respond to people. Mm. And so if you, can help, if you can help change the mindset of people, it's an approach of how to integrate what's already doing. You know, one of the things I say all the time is that no one has a monopoly 
on education. I mean, I can't tell you how many panels I sit on and people are called experts. And right. I'm like, there are no experts in education. Mm. Because what works one place and for one student may not work in the, the, you know, for the next student or another place. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things uh, that I, I'm constantly saying, and some of my contemporaries or colleagues will say, you know, why are you saying that? Because, well, you're not an expert. <laughs> I mean, your, your, your dissertation is based upon a lit review, based upon what other people have written, or you're quoting someone who's quoted somebody. Right. So just let's say we're not an expert. We've done a lot of research, and we, we're trying for certain things, but we're always trying to get better. And so what our innovative approach is execution. Do less and do less well. And so mm. and how, how does everything overlap? And that's what happens. Everything will overlap. You know, mental health services, special education, student culture, all this stuff overlaps. And what mm-hmm. we just show, our theory of change, is if you can connect all those components in an integrated fashion, you get the, the desired results. Schools are set up. And that schools are mostly set up and they're very compartmentalized. That's the problem. So the dean or the assistant principal doesn't talk to the social worker. And the social worker doesn't talk to the special educator. The social mm-hmm. educator doesn't speak to the teacher. So our theory of change is if, you, if we can com, um, create a space and a, a structure for those people to communicate, we'll get the desired results. So is your approach, you go to a school division, you set up the trainings to help them connect and, put and connect the dots. You guys are more of the training wing and to, to empower school divisions basically to help themselves, or you go in and actually you're more of a practitioner? So we do three types. And this is kind of, so we have, we have three levels of services. Service number one is a needs assessment, right? And it kind of sounds cliche because everyone says they do a needs assessment. Our approach is predicated, and what you're going to hear now is the fact that there is nothing new, and I'm borrowing from a lot of people who have done this work even longer than I've been alive. So mm-hmm. concentricity is really based upon Dr. Barbara Sizemore, the first African-American woman superintendent of D.C. public schools, way ahead of mm-hmm. her time. Um, James Comer, who's at Yale, who's been doing this work since the late 60s, early 70s. Malefe Asante, my professor at Temple. Um, the modern-day father of Afrocentricity, and then Freeman Grabowski, his work at UMBC and the Mile Health Program. So uh, Malefe Asante's um, Afrocentricity is predicated upon putting African-Americans or Africans in the, the diaspora at the center of social phenomena. Concentricity is putting the student at the center of school phenomena mm. and school operations. And so I mean, you, you take the melting pot of those, uh, of those pioneers and what we do is we'll conduct a needs assessment. But the needs assessment is not just about data. A lot of people in education will quickly say, okay, we have a suspension problem, so let's do something. And then they try to do something that doesn't work because they're only looking at one type of data. They're looking at numbers, quantitative. Mm-hmm. What we ask them to do is we do a quantitative. We'll ask, we'll, we'll, we ask for their data, but then we ask for the, the qualitative piece. We're going to do an ethnographic study. We need to see the causes behind the numbers. Mm-hmm. Then we offer the solution. So that's like tier one. We can just do a needs assessment, and schools can say, okay, thank you, and move on, or now right. can you help us? The tier two piece is where we actually train and build staff capacity. Um, a lot of times staff will say, we're already overworked. We can't do anymore. So I won't try to, you know, I, I won't try to uh, push the, we're going to train you how to do more, right, or do things differently. The level three service is where we're actually doing a lot of the work with the students. So the minority male mentoring, uh, home visits, it's just to show them to give the school a, uh, a boost or a burst of energy, and then we go back to Tier 2 about building capacity. Because, quite frankly, the problem with one of the problems with urban education is organizations are making millions of dollars. And, quite frankly, predominantly uh, white organizations are making mm-hmm. millions of dollars off black and brown children. And the school Unpack that. Again, Unpack and, that a little bit. So a school a organization will come in, and they're coming in based upon the fact that the school needs help. Right. They offer help. They're not building sustainability. So when, they take, when the money runs out, because it's not, you know, if the money's going to run out, the money runs out. Right? And then they take their services with them, and schools two or three years later aren't able to replicate what, they were able to, what, they, uh, what the program was doing. Right. So it's almost like you know, it's, 
not in a negative sense. I don't want to paint that picture. But those those organizations are parasitic in the fact that they they can't go anywhere. Your your right. your sole goal is to put yourself out of business, but organizations are not are not doing that. So it sounds like if you're more people driven, if you build people, you can change the culture versus coming in with all these programs that require money, and then when the money runs out, then the results Absolutely. run out. And that's why so that's why we we message all the time that we're an approach and not a program. I got you. That's because good. If, oh, that's people good. Start, if, if people if if you if we're labeled as a program, the um, the shift then becomes we have to do it. If it's an approach, right. we teach how to think and how to do it. And what about the need to? And I want to tie this into you know preparing our students to be ready for this globally competitive workforce. Um, let's face it, you know when it comes to the field of education, I'm a firm believer we need our best and brightest. Um, of course, in, in every field, every subject, but I'm unapologetic about we need some of the greats in education. Education is the field that touches every other field. Can you talk about the need to have strong educators, strong leaders to help prepare our children for this globally competitive workforce? No, absolutely. I think what has happened is, I mean, it's been a, it's been a movement. I mean, historically, I mean, we in-house education. I'm talking about African-Americans. Um, you know, your teacher lived right next to you. But as mobility became more and more prevalent, educators, you know, moved out and saw other neighborhoods other than where their students were actually coming from. And okay. while concurrently while that was uh, happening, you know, education as a profession um, was on the decline as far as who are actually becoming the teachers. And many right. of the HBCUs, uh, I can just go back to my time at Morgan and Temple, I mean Morgan and um, Lincoln, you know, the, the programs are not as emphasized. There's not a right. lot of rigor, and we've, lo- we've lost that, that pipeline. Now, uh, and I'm a partner with them, so, I mean, I don't want to paint this picture. Uh, I'm, I'm a strategic partner with Teach, uh, Teach for America. Well, people are really anti-Teach for America. There's a lot of anti, particularly in urban districts, there's an anti-sentiment around Teach for America, that there's these young white people coming in to parachute and help, you know, poor children. Mm-hmm. Well, in some instances, that's true. But there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a because they're feeling a need because we're not doing it. We have to re-emphasize, right. the, re-emphasize the need to fill this space. Right. And, and that's so key because oftentimes, you know, it's not, a, it's not a racial thing per se because, you know, great leaders, great people, I believe, can, can connect with others regardless of, of race. I, I believe that. However, yeah. um, oftentimes to connect maybe with that young male uh, the, who, who might be, you know, uh, you know, teetering into, you know, getting into trouble, Sometimes you need that certain person who can really connect with him. And but if we don't, if there's such a shortage, you know, we're we're all at a it's a problem. So I, you know, I just think we've got to be more vocal about having those strong those strong educators, you know, who who are willing to go above and beyond because this is a people business. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And you know, one of the things that we we, we talk about is you know, so I'm part of a fraternity. And we have our national initiatives of whatever change may be. And I have conversations with, you know, uh, close friends who are in different fraternities. Um, but even if you just take whether we want to call it the divine nine or the, the eight that was, the, you know, the, whatever case may be, fraternities and sororities, <laughs> is that we, um, we don't coordinate our services enough. So if you take our, if you take our program, the Guide Right program, which is the, our nas- CAPA's national um, initiative, why not connect that with Omega Psi Phi's national, uh, national initiative? Right. You know, why not the uh, Phi Beta Sigma, Alpha Phi Alpha, um, Iota Phi Theta? You know, even with the sororities, uh, you know, one of the, one of the national movements that, has, that is doing a tremendous job, and I think they probably are the most organized social organization that I've ever seen, is Delta Sigma Theta with their Embody program. Mm-hmm. And it's a national initiative. There are standards that each chapter has to follow, and there's uh-huh. outcomes. And so there is, yeah. exactly. So why can't we coordinate that across all nine? Yeah. Well, then it sounds I, like uh, from 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 your from your mouth to God's ears, let's let's make it happen, right? Yes. Yes. I mean, <laughs> no, that's no, good. No, no, absolutely. No, I I think, that, that's good. And I think those, that's the type of thinking that we need to have. Like, you yeah. know, once we get beyond 
you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I'm a Q dog, or I'm a you know a, a noob, or a Sigma, right, or right. Alpha, whatever case may be. At the end of the day, all the principles are tied together anyway. That's right. No, and that's that's so key that you mentioned that the need to connect and help our young people. I do want to ask you, what would you say to that parent who's out there who might be struggling? They see greatness in their child. They they maybe they're in a similar situation that you were in. Uh, you know, great potential, but but they're just struggling. What would you say to that parent or to that young person who's who's at that place in life right now? How, how would you encourage them? Well, I'm not an advocate per se of you know sympathy. I, I truly believe that we we we're over, overly sympathetic with our young people, right? And to me, sympathy lacks accountability. I think we can emphasize and have accountability. I think that's yeah. the, the, you know that that's the, the nuanced approach to it. But I also tell people to be gentle with themselves. I mean, mm. one, one, of the, one of the biggest things that we do is we, we really beat ourselves up. And yeah. once you start beating yourself up, it's really hard to get out of it. And, but every day is truly a new opportunity. And you can't, you know, one of my mantras is there's no such thing as mistake, only a lesson learned and experience gained. And mm. I'm giving, this, I'm giving uh, the commencement address tomorrow for a, uh, a, like a second chance high school, students who have been, in the criminal justice system or have dropped out, whatever the case may be. And I'm, I'm so fortunate to be able to share that because, you know, a lot of times we tell young people don't fall down, don't make mistakes, but we don't tell them how to get back up. Mm. And this is going to be a unique opportunity for students who have fallen down, who've gotten back up. But I'm going to reemphasize that you're constantly learning, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to fall down again. It's how, you know, what is your determination, your tenacity to pick yourself up? Um, you know, and this goes back to the potential promise purpose is, you know, help young people identify their potential, right? Mm, potential to me is something that comes quite naturally. I mean, it's something that you're, you're inclined to want to do. You, you have some type of uh, uh, passion towards it. And for me, passion is anger and love together, mm. right? you know, married together. Um, but where our young people sometimes, well, most of the time the way they need guidance is in the promise. The promise is how much time are you spending on your potential? Like, mm. you know, really, I mean, we, we talk, you know, I, I can't tell you how many people I did time with who said they were going to the NBA. Well, mm. you're facing 25 years. Yeah. Wow. Or, you know, we, we talk to the students and they say, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a professional baseball player or, you know, athlete or I'm going to, you know, I really want to go to college, but you're not putting the time in. And, and that makes, that's the difference. How much time are you putting in? I mean, it's that Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. And so yeah. that's what we say to them. Is you know you can't talk, you got to walk the walk. Yeah, and that's what we uh, do. It's a, you know with young with parents is help your young help your child identify what they're good at, and then give them outlets where they where, where they can uh, where they can build on those skills. That's good, and that when you're doing that, there's not much energy or time for sympathy. Sounds like you're you're too busy. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you know, you know, it's like there's, there's work that's got to be done here. That's good, Dave, and I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about leadership and the need for effective leadership. In, in many ways, I think that's the, the elephant in the room, that person who's a visionary, who's willing to see a problem and tackle it. And I hear so much of that, you know, in your, bi- in your bio and in your story. Talk a little bit about the importance of uh, being a highly effective leader and what, what characteristics um, stand out for you that makes uh, an effective leader? Well, I mean, so I, I think one of the very first things for leadership is understanding, and there's you know, so many different definitions out there, is that there's different roles and different capacities uh, where a leader can be found and where a leader can be effective. Uh, some of probably the best leaders, the best leader I've ever, I've ever seen across the board is uh, uh, Freeman Robowski. Uh, another wonderful leader is uh, Marco Clark. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's these people who are able to galvanize. Uh, one of the things I'm very clear at, uh, clear about, is that I'm not a leader. I'm more of hmm. a doer, and hmm. you know that, that's that's really important to say on the front end. That yeah. you know I'm not, you know, if you give me a task, I'm more task oriented than uh, than uh, than being you know a leader. I'm a visionary in the sense that you know this is something that I was kind of pushed to do, right. uh, but. You know, we have to identify, you know, it's, it's kind of weird that, you know, I'm training eight principals, or I train eight principals. Uh, I was their mentor this year. 
And wow. you know, and I asked. I asked, that, they that asked makes me, you a leader, Dave. That makes you. Yeah, a leader. I know, right? <laughs> and I asked him. I said, you know, I, I know you received that reluctantly, but. Uh, <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, to me, you know, leadership is, you know, many are called, few are chosen. And when 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 I'm asking the question, the very first question I ask them is, you know, why this? Why do you want to do this? And you know, well, it's the next step. Well, no, leadership is not necessarily the next step. But not necessarily in you know uh, in education because some of the greatest are just in the classroom, and it's not necessarily just to marginalize it, but that's where their place is. So they're showing leadership in the classroom. Many people feel like they need the principalship to be a leader. No, you don't. You can lead from where you are. Sure. And so, I, you know, I, one of the things like I'm constantly saying to them is, you know, lead from your position. Mm. Lead from mm-hmm. your current position. You don't need a title to lead. That's powerful. You know, people will, people will follow it. it you know, galvanize what you're trying to do if you're authentic, if you're transparent, um, and you're vulnerable. You know, and you've, you've, you've been willing to share your testimony and use it as a tool to help others. And I think that's, that is a sign, you know, of, of leadership. I, I, I talk about leadership and I say, you know, sometimes the leader is the person, is the janitor in the building, the person that you yeah. know you can go to when you need to get things done. You know, it's not it's not always title driven, but it's the person who's willing to go out and and do things. Dave, you, you've shared so much today. I, I do want people to be able to get in contact with you um, for your services. How can people get in contact with you? So the very first thing I always say is, you know, give me a call, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, now that we have unlimited minutes, uh, definitely give yeah. me a call. But uh, email email is probably the best way. Um, I know I, emails are fine for the uh, for the community uh, for the open you know for the introduction, but I think we are so email driven now that we've lost the human touch. Oh, we're so technology yeah, ahead, driven. Yeah, put out any any contact information you want. Go ahead and do that now. Yeah. So my phone number is two zero two three three zero one seven five three. Again, that's two two zero two three three zero one seven five three. I'm always available. Um, and my email address is kind of lengthy, but it's D-L-H-E-I-B-E-R, which is my last name, D-L-H-E-I-B-E-R, dot C-O-N-C-E-N-T-R-I-C-E-S. It sounds more difficult than it is, but it's D-L-Heber dot concentric, the name of the company, E-S, at gmail.com. Awesome. Hey, Michael Fordham, I know you've been listening in. What are some of your uh, thoughts about our conversation today? What a, what a powerful hour we've had here. Well, yeah, I've enjoyed it, man. I've just been sitting here listening to this amazing story of a man who sort of reclaimed everything that you think the penal system could take away from someone. You've gotten it back and more. So uh, I can only say that that's a phenomenal story in itself. And to have reached such heights in your career and still have a focus on people is just amazing. So I don't know what to say. I just want to listen to this show again and take it all in one more time when I'm not working. <laughs> hey Mike, I think we're going to have to have Dave on again. What do you think? Or definitely have oh. him on to measure the truth. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, a phenomenal story, and there's just so much in there. I'm sure we only heard just a small portion. Dave, we, I, I appreciate it, both, uh, both of you, very, very much. Dave, we've only got just a few, maybe a minute here left. I just wanted to allow you to have the floor to just give any parting shots, any 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 comments you want our listeners to hear. No, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I guess to sum it up is to be vulnerable, to be authentic, and be transparent, uh, but also realize that you're going to make mistakes. Don't let the mistakes define you. Don't let other people define you by your mistakes. Allow the mistakes to build you, um, and always remember that your life will be defined by the service that you give to others. That is powerful. That is powerful. Well, Dave, we certainly appreciate you being on today, and, and we hope to have you on again at some point, and we we. I'm just excited about all the thing that all the things that God has you doing out here, and uh, just thanks for being on, buddy. I appreciate it. Thank, uh, thanks to both of you. Uh, it was truly my honor. And however I can be supportive, keep doing what you're doing. Hey, likewise, brother. We appreciate you. All right. Thanks so much. All right. God bless. Well, friends, you've heard it straight from the horse's mouth today. Doctor David L. Heber gave us plenty of food for thought. Discover your purpose, discover your passion, and go for it with maximum energy. We're so glad that you joined us today on The Brown Bag. Join us again next time. Until next time, love God, love people, 
Live on purpose. Bless.